<coughs> excuse me, <coughs> my allergies are acting like acting up like crazy today. As we wrap up the series on the truth of forgiveness, I want to talk about what will happen when we refuse to forgive. And we want to talk about how to conquer that. Uh, no one sets out to be a bitter person. Uh, when we talk about conditional forgiveness, inevitably someone will raise the concern that this will only lead to bitterness. And if, as if that's the end of all arguments against this view of forgiveness. If it can cause someone to be bitter, or they do become bitter, then this must be wrong, even though God forgives this way. But bitterness is not the result of conditional forgiveness. Conditional forgiveness, uh, 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 bitterness is the, uh, is the result of wrong focus. When we focus on the hurt rather than in God, that's when we become bitter. We have to follow God's example if we're going to forgive the way that God wants us to forgive. Colossians 3.13 tells us, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any have a quarrel against it, any, even as Christ forgave you. By the way, that word even as literally means equal to. The same way. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. God would not want us to forgive in any different way than he does. He who is perfect and always is right has forgiven us who have repented. God does not forgive everyone in the world, but he does offer forgiveness to all. Chris Bronze in his book on forgiveness said, The offer of forgiveness is to everyone, regardless of repentance. It's offered. No, uh, and the repent, uh, no, it says that, excuse me, forgiveness no more leads to bitterness than the father who wraps presents and puts them under a Christmas tree, hoping that his children will accept the gifts. He says, forgiveness and a restored relationship is what offenders will find inside the gift if they'll open the package. And yet people allow themselves to grow bitter. We know the damage it does to others around us. We've seen it. We've all known people who were bitter. And yet I've met a, many a bitter people who, and, and I, I've never met really very few bitter people who are willing to say, yep, I'm bitter. <laughs> very rarely do we identify it ourselves. Amen? But we've all seen that person who's angry and cantankerous, screaming at the kids to get off their lawn or kicking the dog or whatever else may be. I know my dad always uh, used to always say when he was preaching, I, I just want to be one of those sweet old men. I don't want to be one of those cantankerous old men. And I keep telling him, you better get started. But uh, <laughs> No, but you know, it, it, we've seen those type of people, haven't we? Whenever I was in earth science class in the eighth grade, we were given a piece of mercury to experiment with. <laughs> And as we played with the elements, we were told to wear gloves and eye protection. And this amazing substance is physically dense, and even a small amount is heavy in weight. And it's high viscosity or surface tension. Uh, it has high, high vis viscosity, and so it slides around on the paper that we put it on. And it breaks apart on contact with something like the table. If we dropped it onto the desk off the paper, it would just come apart into little pieces. And we'd scoot it together, and it would come together and become one drop again. 
It's fascinating stuff, and it's, it's fun to play with, but it's also highly toxic. If you get mercury into your system and it can seep through your hands and through your skin, if you get even a small amount of mercury in your system, it can go straight to your brain and make you literally go crazy. <laughs> Wikipedia says that, by the way, a great source for information. I'm not, you know, I don't base all my information on Wikipedia. I was just talking about that earlier. But Wikipedia says that mercury damages the central nervous system, the endocrine system, the kidneys, and other organs. Other than that, it's great fun. But you know, bitterness is like mercury. It's tempting to play with it. But the more you hang around it, the quicker it's going to kill you. Proverbs 14, 14, 30 says, A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. The word envy here is not just wanting something, but it's an intense, bitter envy. It's a very strong word in the Hebrew. This is the kind of bitterness that we see on display in Psalm 73. Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73, shared his battle with bitterness openly and honestly. Very few displays of honesty in the Bible more than Asaph. Verses 1 through 16, we see the bitterness that he was fighting and the results of that bitterness. He starts off in verse 1, admitting the truth about God. God is good to Israel, but me... He says, truly God is good to Israel, even to such are of a clean heart. But he says, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps were, had nigh, well nigh slipped. Then Israel begins to delve into his story and why he was bitter. He says, I was envious of the foolish. When I, again, by the way, that same word. I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, the people that are doing evil are prospering. He says, for there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride can passeth them out as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, and they have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt. And speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore, his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out of them. And they say, How doth God know? Do you hear the blasphemy that they're speaking? There is, and is there knowledge in the Most High? Is it, does he really know anything? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my hands in vain and washed my hands in his seat. He says, I've done the right thing in the ritualistic way of the law in vain. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. And then verse 15 and 16, he began to talk about the results of bitterness. He says, if I say, I will speak thus, if I keep speaking this way, behold, I should offend against the, ch the generation of thy children. It's going to harm the people coming after me. He began to realize if he kept going down this path, it would not just affect him, but his children and grandchildren would be offended. 
would pull away from the Lord. He came to the realization that it wasn't worth it. Verse 16, he says, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. He's not talking about what's happening with the wicked is being too painful. He's talking about the realization that if he continues in his bitterness, the future generation is going to fall by his example. So how did Asaph beat bitterness? Like Asaph, we need to take three steps to escape bitterness. Number one, give way to God's way. Give way to God's way. When we're reveling in our bitterness, we never want to do the right thing, do we? <clears throat> we enjoy feeling that misery. Because if, for some reason we think it's hurting other people. <laughs> the people we're angry at. It feels too good in the moment to stew over it. But we need to surrender to God. The moment we realize that we have given place to the root of bitterness in our hearts, we need to surrender it to God. Hebrews 12, 15 says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail from the grace of God, of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. He says it's just the root of bitterness that's going to cause you to fall from the grace of God. I don't know about you, but I need all the grace of God I can get, amen? I need all the help I can get. And this verse tells us that bitterness will keep us from that. We have to diligently look at our situation and make sure we are accepting God's grace that he offers us to forgive others. The first step in giving way to God's grace is to go to him. Amen? Go to God. Asaph realized the situ his situation here. He realized the effect he was having on his children and his children's children, and he moved to correct it. His first step was to go to God. Verse 17, you'll notice. It says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. This is the turning point of the entire psalm. And what did it hinge on? Going to God. We need to go to God and ask him for help. If we have any hope of getting victory, we need to ask him for his help and his grace. I had a real struggle with a person a few years ago. And I tried my best to get along but my personality just clashed with theirs. And they were part of our church, and I dealt with them multiple times a week. And I got to the place where I was forgiving something on a regular basis. <laughs> and more likely, it was I was covering over, as we talked about in an earlier thing. I just tried to give it to God and just move on. And I got to the place where I was constantly having to do that, I felt like. I began to grow bitter towards the person. I finally had to go to God and give it to him and say, I can't control this. I can't fix them. And I need help. And there was a turning point in my life. By the way, not theirs. But there was a turning point in my life. Where when they did something that clashed with my personality, God gave me the grace to handle it. I had to pray and realize that they, they were exactly the way that God had made them to be. <laughs> what they were doing is not sin. It just clashed with my personality. And I sinned by my reaction to it. 
But when I gave it to God, accepted his grace, and chose every time after to accept the grace of God to handle it, I had peace. Take it to God. And when we're there, we can secondly, as the verse 17 also talks, talks about, we can see their doom. Till I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood, then understood I their end, he says. When he went to God and he saw their end, the end result of their choices, the one who had offended him, the one who had caused him pain, he saw that God would take care of them. Vengeance is his. He has the right to avenge. I'm not perfect, so I don't have the right to avenge. He says in verse 18, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How art they brought into desolation? As in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. This hasn't happened yet. But he knows by what God has said when he begins to go to God and seek God and seek wisdom from him and his word, he realizes the end result of what's going to happen. Verse 20 says, As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Asaph saw that God had it all under control. He was going to deal with them. They were going to be destroyed if they didn't repent. They were going to be brought into desolation if they didn't repent. They'll be consumed with terrors. The Bible says God won't even be able to look at them. As one who dreams of nightmare and can't stand to even think about what you were dreaming about as you're trying to get some more sleep and you just, the thought comes in your head and you just shake your head to get it away. He says, just like that, God will despise even looking at them. Wow. Some might say at this point, yes, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I want. <laughs> God, get them. But you know what? That wasn't Asaph's reaction. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, that wasn't Asaph's reaction. And it shouldn't be the response, this should not be the reaction of anyone that's filled with the Holy Spirit, anyone that is yielded to the Holy Spirit. We, like Asaph, when we see that God is going to judge them, ought to instead choose to love our enemies. Look at verse 21. After seeing the destruction, after seeing all this, he said, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. Asaph's heart was grieved when he saw what was in their future. His heart was pricked. His, his, it hurt his heart to think about the, his enemy's end. Asaph's reaction was the living out of what Jesus would later command his followers. In Luke chapter 6, he said, But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you. And pray for them that despite, despitefully use you. The correct response to a Christian truly seeing what is coming for those who have offended us ought to stir the love in our hearts to intervene for them. Asaph realized how wrong he had been. 
In verse 22, he said, So foolish was I and ignorant. I was a beast before thee. He said, I was foolish. I was, I was ignorant. I, I was a beast. I was a stubborn animal before you. I wanted what I wanted. I wanted to get even. But when I saw what was in store for these, these men, I couldn't be happy. I realized how wrong I was to focus on myself and realize I need to love my enemy. The second step we can take after giving way to God's way is to listen to wise counsel. Listen to wise counsel. And this is hard to do when we're right in the middle of bitterness. Amen? Am I the only one? It's hard to hear the truth when you're wrong. <laughs> and by the way, if you're bitter, you are wrong. It doesn't mean that what they did wasn't wrong, but your reaction to it is wrong. Many a time I've confronted a church member about bitterness that they had in their heart, and very few have said, you know what, you're right. How can I fix that? <laughs> very few. The truth is, like Asaph, we have a skewed reality, letter A. We have a skewed reality. Look again at verse number 22. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was a beast before thee. He had to come to the realization that he had been being foolish. He was being ignorant. He was being stubborn. When we have this skewed reality, there has to come a point when God has to break you before you can ever truly hear the truth. He has to break through that wall of bitterness before you'll ever get better. Now we have a choice. We can give way to God's way and break ourselves. <laughs> or we can wait for God to bring circumstances in our lives that will break our will for us. Have you ever experienced that moment when a friend or acquaintance comes to you and confronts you with something in your life and an action committed, a wrong attitude or something that was said? And when they confront you, your first reaction says, no, that's, that's not right. That's not what happened. <laughs> and often this is because we have a skewed reality. And we need to hear when this happens. Bring our skewed reality to God and say, show me the truth. I've had church members come to me and say, Pastor, I don't think this is right. Uh, something you said in your sermon, I, I, I don't know. And, uh, you know. I don't know, but this just, the Bible says this, and you said this. And, and I, I've come to them and say, well, and I've always tried to have a good spirit about it and uh, not let my pride go up and, and everything, a wall go up. And I'll say, well, you know what? I'll study that out. I'll look at that. I, I'm human. I'll, I make mistakes all the time. Okay, so I will study that out. And there have been times when I've gone and I've thought, you know what? I was wrong. <laughs> and I had to come back to the church and say, hey, I was wrong here. There were other times whenever I had went to the Lord and prayerfully sought it out, searched scripture, and I said, no, I think what I said was right. Based on scripture, and I compiled scripture to be able to come to them and say, this is why I believe this statement was right. And there have been times when I have to put my pride down and say, is this right, God? I, I think I'm right. If I didn't think I was right, I wouldn't have said it. <laughs> Am I misunderstanding this? We all come to the point where we have to do that. 
If somebody comes to you and confronts you with your bitterness, listen. They may not be right. They may not understand the whole situation. But they might be right. And God might have sent them to break through that wall. Go to God. Listen to wise counsel. Realize we have a skewed, a skewed reality. Asaph went to the sanctuary of God and he heard the truth. This was the turning point in his bitterness. So we see we have a skewed reality and then what do we need to do? We need to be open to God and we need to be seek the truth. We need to seek the truth. Go to God's word. And go to biblical counseling and seek the truth. Asaph said, as soon as I realized how wrong I was, I stuck with God. Verse 23, he says, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. And thou hast holded me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. He went to the sanctuary and he found the answer. We don't want to hear what, when we're wrong, I know. But we need to. We need to hear it anyways. If we see that we're thinking wrong, then we need to go to the source of God's instruction to find the right thinking. The Bible tells us the way to succeed in this Christian life and succeed against temptation is to put off the old and put on the new. Put off the sin and put on the righteousness, the right thing to do. We have to replace the wrong thinking with the right thinking. Read the Word of God and ask God to show you and help you show you what you need to know. Go to the church faithfully with an open heart and mind ready to hear from God. And I may not even speak about what your problem is. And yet the Holy Spirit will sometimes use words to sink in and say, you need to hear this. And we'll tell you exactly what you need. That still small voice inside your heart. You need to hear from God. Pray, God, show me what I need to hear today when you come into church. Be ready to hear and be ready to obey. Go to biblical counseling. If you're struggling with bitterness, confide in someone who can take the word of God and show you how to hear. Not someone who can just hear you and say, yeah, boy, that's rough. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That was wrong. No, we need to take the word of God. Go to someone that can take the word of God and say, this is what you need to do. This is how you deal with it in God's way. Some of our ladies in our church are going through counseling sessions on how to counsel women. Come to me and I'll point you to one of these ladies that have gotten some instruction on how to take the word of God and be able to help you. If you're a woman, I'll send you to one of these women so women can counsel women. I'll have you come to me. I'll have you go to my dad. I'll have you go to some of the godly men of the church. And we'll try to work through this together. Many times we're afraid to have the pastor know the truth about us. Rest assured, I already see the crack in your mask. I already know that you're not perfect. Don't be prideful. Don't be foolish. It's going to stay between us. I'm not talking about, I'm not going to talk to anybody else about what we said. But 
but get help. Go to someone that can help you with your bitterness. Outside of having to report child abuse, where I'm by law required to report that, everything that's said stays with me. I don't have all the answers. I definitely don't. But what a difference it makes sometimes just to say it out loud and have someone who can share God's word, that can pray with you, that can seek the answers and try to help walk you through it. If you're fighting bitterness, you need to give way to God's way. Go to him. Realize he sees the situation, that he will deal with it. But let that realization stir the love of God in your heart to intervene for your enemies. Secondly, listen to wise counsel. The best counsel is from God's word. But listen to God's word preached in church. Listen to God's word preached on sermons online. Reading godly books. Seeking counsel from your pastor, from other godly men or ladies in the church. And then the third step to escaping bitterness is to lean on God. Lean on God. This is not a one-time thing. This is a way of life. I've tried many diets in my day. I've tried Atkins. I've tried South Beach diet. I just felt like I liked South Beach, so I thought that would work. But I've tried all kinds of different things. Never tried the cabbage diet because I hate boiled cabbage. But I've tried all these things, and they work for a time. But as soon as I change what I'm doing and go back to my old ways... I yo-yo back up, don't I? Don't answer that. I have to change what I'm doing permanently. It has to become a way of life from now on. This has to be your new way of life. Lean on God. Asaph realized that God was the only one that would be able to help him. Verse 25, he says, "Whom Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all of them that go whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Asaph came to the three realizations here at the end. If he was going to escape bitterness, he realized, first of all, God is the only one that's going to be able to help. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that is able to help me. There's no one that could help Asaph other than God. No one in heaven that could help. No one here anywhere on earth that could help. My own flesh and heart have failed me. In verse 26, my flesh and my heart faileth. But my God is my strength. Realize that if I am ever going to get help with these miserable feelings, if I'm ever going to be able to stop hurting those close to me, it is only going to come from God. The second realization Asaph came to was that God will repay. God will take care of it. Verse 27, For lo, they that are are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee. 
It is sure as if it's already happened. He said, those who are far from you shall. It, it's certain. It will happen. But then he says, thou has destroyed. Past tense. God will take care of what is happening to us, either through natural consequences here on earth, or uh, the truth always comes out. And the eternal consequences, if they refuse that truth. As sure as God is living, God will take care of it. Give it to him and lean on God. Bruce Murakami's story is an example of how bitterness can be defeated. Bruce and his wife Cindy lived in the sunshine. They met in Hawaii while Bruce was working as a salesman at a, at a car lot. <clears throat> she came to buy a car and a year later they were married. Cindy had a five-year-old son when they got married. They soon had another son, and a few years later, they adopted a little girl named Chelsea. <clears throat> More sunshine. After Hawaii, they moved to Florida, the sunshine state. <laughs> and Bruce started a construction business. They joined a Sunday school class, and soon they were teaching a class on parenting. But the sunshine didn't last long. On November 18, 1998, the Marikami's world turned pitch black when a teenager named Justin Cabezas killed Cindy and 11-year-old Chelsea. It wasn't intentional. Cabezas was street racing when he collided with the van in which Cindy and Chelsea were riding. Both Cindy and Chelsea died at the scene of the accident. Bruce Murakami described how he found out about the tragedy. He, he said, as I was leaving our home, I noticed the smoke from the wreck billowing above the houses in my neighborhood there. So I, deci I decided to drive by and see what had happened. <clears throat> he said, actually, something pulled me there. So when I came upon the crash and realized that it was my family trapped inside the van, I was devastated. He said, I literally blacked out, and when I came to, I was numb. For months after that, I went through the motions of each day like a zombie-like state not caring much about life at all. After the accident, Murakami focuses energy on two goals. He wanted to clear Cindy's name by proving that the accident wasn't her fault. The CHP had said that her, it was her fault before pulling out in front of a vehicle. He wanted to bring justice to the person who had killed her. Murakami was especially consumed with seeing Cabezas charged. When no charges were filed against Cabezas, Murakami hired attorneys and threatened action against, legal action against the Florida Highway Patrol. He filed a suit against a rental, comp, uh, rental car company involved and uh, met repeatedly with prosecutor, uh, the prosecutor's office. He'd say, what, what happened to our so-called justice system? Even though prosecutors claimed there was not enough evidence, Murakami was restless, relentless, excuse me. Finally, Murakami's persistence won out. In 2001, charges were brought when Murakami saw Justin come into the courtroom. He, he was eager to see what this boy looked like, to, to see who had killed his wife and his daughter. Eager to see charges brought against him, and when he walked into the room, he was shocked to see this guy was not at all what he expected. Instead of a calloused punk kid who was street racing, he just saw a young teen boy scared and clean cut. He didn't speak to Cabezas that day, but he began to wonder what kind of effect the accident had had on this young man's life. 
He went home and after the early morning hearing, thinking of mercy as well as justice, he said, I turned on the TV and the towers were burning. It was September 11th, 2001. Months later, Cabezas changed his plea to guilty. First had pleaded not guilty, but he decided to plead guilty, willing to take a sentence of 15 years in prison as a felon if the judge allowed him to serve both sentences concurrently. Justice was about to be served, but then sunshine broke through the clouds again. Rather than asking the judge to give Cabezas the maximum penalty, Murakami stood up in court and asked the judge for leniency in sentencing Cabezas. He said, I believe Justin is remorseful. He's a young man. I believe in giving him a second chance. The judge was lenient. The charge was reduced to manslaughter <clears throat> at the agree agreement of all parties. Although Cabezas could have been sentenced up to 30 years in, print, in, in prison, sentencing guidelines called for 22 years. He was sentenced to house arrest for two years, probation for eight, and 300 hours of community service. At the request of Murakami, by the sudden change of heart, Bruce Murakami described in his own words why he asked the judge to be lenient. I read voraciously and sought counsel with my pastor. I wanted to know what I could do to move on. Finally, I realized that the only way I could really move on was to forgive Justin. So in an emotional and painful meeting, I talked with Justin alone. It was just the two of us face to face for the first time. When Justin broke down and apologized, I realized he was in much, as much pain as I was in. But the best was yet to come. Murakami, uh, Murakami began to pray about how he could do what was honorable and overcome evil with good. Again, in his words, he says, This seemingly crazy idea came into my head. An idea so crazy that I couldn't even believe it at first. I started thinking about what might happen if Justin and I talked to teenagers together about driving responsibly. I started to think that maybe we could teach them about responsibility behind the wheel of a car and in life. Murakami's idea was to begin an organization called Safe Teen Driver. And even before the court case was finished, he had taken Justin to gone together to different schools in the area and given a speech. And both of them talked openly about what had happened. Among other things, he and Justin Cabeza would go to school assemblies and even their schools where they went to school and his child went to school. In 2007, Hallmark made a movie about their story entitled Crossroads, A Story of Forgiveness. Seven years later, Justin Cabeza re reflected on what had happened between him and Bruce Murakami. He said, in my heart, I always had wanted to talk with Bruce, but somewhere behind all that, there had always been that desire to atone. I think I probably went through a hundred different things I was going to say. But when I got there, nothing really came out rehearsed. I was too emotional for that. Today, Bruce is a great friend. He's somewhat like family. He knows the worst thing I've ever done in my life, and he's forgiven me for it. Let's think about the key points of how Bruce Murakami forgave Justin Cabezas. He could have easily become bitter. In fact, he did for a while. He lost his wife and his daughter to carelessness. 
At first, he was nearly consumed with the injustice of the whole situation, but he sought wise counsel. Bruce Murakami and Justin Cabasis reconciled. They met together. Justin was repentant. Bruce forgave him, and they began a new relationship. Rather than give in to bitterness, Bruce Murakami thought creatively. After praying and seeking counsel, he wanted to know how he could move forward from this. And out of the darkness of losing his wife and daughter came the light of a new organization, Safe Teen Driver, which has spoken to thousands of teenagers now. Murakami said, you have to deal with your anger or it will destroy you. If I hadn't found a way to forgive, I would have been the third victim. Will you hang on to your bitterness or will you give way to God's way? Will you listen to wise counsel? Will you lean on God for your help? I've said often, bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. It's not worth hanging on to. Forgive today and be free of the burden that you carry. I sleep with a CPAP machine. I hose goes on my mouth and I struggle with it sometimes at night and things like that but I've done it for now for 10 years so I'm pretty well used to it I don't notice that it helps much every day but if I ever go one day without sleeping with it boy do I notice I'm exhausted all day long it's like carrying your burden of unforgiveness you don't really even notice it much after all these years But once you have laid it down at Jesus' feet, you'll walk away free and light. And you can pick up his yoke and realize it's easy. So come to him today. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts and lives. There are people in this room that are harboring bitterness right now. I know there are. I know there are. You cannot have this many people in one room and not have some that are harboring bitterness. Father, there are others in this room that will have opportunities just around the corner to harbor bitterness. Life is few and full of trouble. Our life brings hurt and pain. But you're here to help us. You have said you will not leave us or forsake us. If we'll just listen, yield to your Holy Spirit, and give way to your way, you will help us be able to weather all of the storms of this life. Father, I pray that you do work in my heart. Keep me from bitterness. Help me not allow even a small root of bitterness to take root. When I see it, may I destroy it. Cling to you. And allow you to do the work in my heart. Pray that you help us now today. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. We're going to sing one verse of invitation. If the Lord has spoken to your heart, take care of it now as we sing.
Ask the Lord to help you. Go to him. When you go home, make a plan. Figure out how you're going to get through it. If you need help, come and talk to me. Come and talk to my wife. Come and talk to someone and get help. We don't want it to destroy you. Let's sing a verse of invitation. Three hundred and